0: Trinitas Church, we just got done with our final meeting of our Pacific Northwest Presbytery here, and um, I noticed something. I was sharing this with some of my friends and fellow ministers. I actually have a flawless record since my ordination in 2012 of never having a single motion that I made actually pass at Presbytery. This is my sole claim to fame. And it's the sort of thing that, you know, you could reflect on in a rather cynical way and think, good grief, what am I doing there? Perhaps all of my labors are in vain. Now, that'd be totally wrong because I voted on the right side of many, many motions that passed, okay? So, and I've done speeches in favor of them, but the five or six that I've made just, they, well, they haven't passed. That's just not occurred. But it does point us to a basic human tendency to interpret the work of our hands as having been in vain, empty. Having failed for some reason. Trinitas Church, for the past several weeks, we have been expounding on the great doctrine of the resurrection, of eschatology, and the last things in the end of the world. And Paul ends this incredible discourse on these high and lofty topics with a single verse that might seem out of place. It's verse 58. It is a simple declaration to the Corinthians that their labors are not in vain. And I want to tell you something. One of the best tests for whether you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is whether you can say, chapter 15, verse 58, with a straight face, that you know and believe your labors to not be in vain. This is a most practical matter before us today something of a departure from the bigger and loftier ideas that we have been considering. Trinitas Church, my hope is that today you will be able to leave with confidence that the work of your hands is not empty. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, it is the incessant fear of men and women who know that they are going to die, that there is going to be a definitive end to their life in this body on earth. It is our fear then maybe everything we have labored for is meaningless. Holy God, whether we are a believer or an unbeliever, this thought continues to afflict us. We pray that by the most powerful and mighty word of God, we might have our hearts and souls and minds lifted up in Jesus Christ. May we learn from the Apostle Paul, and not just what he speaks, but by his own life example and struggles, may we learn about how this wonderful truth of the resurrection puts all things in their proper light and enables us to sleep at night with the confidence that all is not in vain. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's going to be one short reading today, as it is but one verse. When I'm finished reading, we will say, this is God's word, and you may rise to your feet, and we will say, thanks be to God, and sing a short verse together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is God's word. Trinitas Church, our verse opens up with the conjunction, therefore. To put it simply, what Paul is about to say, this short encouragement he believes follows from everything that he has said before. In short, because there is a resurrection from the dead, therefore, we ought to conclude that our labors are not in vain. They are not empty. Before we can understand the link in Paul's thinking here, we need to take stock of what a serious problem this happens to be, this concern that maybe we're laboring for nothing. This problem is so serious, it's so serious that it afflicted the Apostle Paul himself. Many of us are not aware of the fact that if we read straight through Paul's letters, we would see a candid report in almost every one of Paul's letters of his own concern that maybe everything he has worked for is meaningless. Did you hear what I just said? This giant in the faith, this man that worldly historians actually will sometimes say has had a bigger influence on the world than Jesus himself, and we know they're wrong. They will sometimes say that Paul had a bigger influence on the world than Jesus himself. This man struggled with the thought that his labors were maybe empty. You can see how worldly thinkers draw this conclusion. From a purely historical perspective, Paul preached to more people, preached in more regions. He affected more peoples directly than Jesus, who focused his ministry in Galilee. We, of course, know as Christians that Jesus saved the world, but you see my point. Paul, if anyone, we would chalk up as a man of great accomplishment. We know that Paul was an evangelist from Damascus to Rome. He spanned the Mediterranean in his efforts for the kingdom. We know that Paul wrote 13 epistles, that's letters, inspired words of God that have blessed people for millennia. And yet Paul frequently utters this phrase, perhaps I've labored in vain. See, the thing is, Paul knows how badly you need to hear this. He knew how badly the Corinthians needed to hear this because he himself struggled with the thought that maybe it's all, it's all been in vain. I'm going to expound on three ways in which you will, or maybe already have, or maybe presently are questioning the value of your labors. I'm going to talk about three basic ways in which we do this, and I'm going to look at it through the lens of Paul himself, who struggled with each one of them. The very first way in which we struggle with the thought that our labors are in vain is that we look at the work of our hands. We look at the very work of our own hands, and we second guess that anything good has really been produced. We tell you about the apostle Paul. Many of you know his story. The Apostle Paul was a highly educated Jewish rabbi who spent the earlier half of his life persecuting Christians, even aiding in the murder of certain Christian martyrs. This highly educated Jewish rabbi one time found himself probably around 34 AD traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus a region where he had learned or heard that Christianity was making great strides and where he went to join in their persecution. And yet on that road to Damascus, you may know the story. The apostle Paul is powerfully met by Jesus Christ himself, knocked off of his horse, and Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That is, as I'm present in my body, my people, Christians. Paul is left speechless and the Lord Jesus declares, I'm going to make you an apostle, a teacher of the Christian faith to peoples all over the globe. Paul's special task was to carry the gospel to Gentile peoples. If you don't know what that means, it means non-Jewish peoples who were not nurtured in the teachings of the Old Testament, who are in many ways alienated from the people of God. Paul was to go about preaching a doctrine of justification by faith alone. He was to teach people that by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith in him alone, no works of your own added to it, you would be saved, heaven bound, set on a course to resurrection and eternal life with God. We preach this same gospel every Sunday. The good news that you can be saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And Paul would even preach to these Gentile peoples that you don't even have to become Jewish. Observing the 600 and some commandments of the Old Testament in the same ceremonial fashion. He preached that the Gentile peoples would be free from a burdensome code of rites that would have been foreign to them, sacrifices and washings of all kinds. We know that immediately after Paul was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was shortly thereafter baptized, and then he departs for about three years into the region of Arabia, and we don't know exactly what he was doing then. In about 37 AD, he had an initial meeting with the other apostles, and everybody was wondering if this Paul, once persecutor, could possibly be a real Christian. For about six years, from 37 to 43, he ministers for Christ in his hometown of Tarsus and in the, the region surrounding that, and it was a more humble ministry than you might have expected. But listen to this. 14 years after having been met by Jesus, Paul has got to have a definitive meeting with the apostles, and I want to read to you Paul's great concern about his labors for those 14 years in between. Paul is going to go to Jerusalem, talk to the main apostles, the 12, Peter, James, and John, and he's going to tell them what he's been preaching, what he's been teaching, and he's a bit concerned. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 to 2. He says, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus also. It was because of a, rev- of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Paul says, I was afraid that the work of my hands for 14 years might actually have been empty and compromised. Paul was not questioning whether justification by faith in Christ alone was really how men got saved. But Paul had a fear that maybe the way he articulated this truth, the nuance in the style of it, maybe it's caused more harm than good. His concern was that maybe I've left the impression on Jewish Christians that the Old Testament law is unholy. Maybe I've implied the Gentile Christians, non-Jews, are better than the others. Maybe I have seemed to be denouncing the other apostles. And I'm concerned that maybe all of my preaching has been so tainted by these nuances and errors. I'm concerned that maybe it's tainted the whole thing and rendered it vain. I'm going to tell you something right now, Trinitas Church. If you have never doubted your presentation of the gospel, your witness for Christ, and whether it has been saturated with so many bad elements, even with the good, as to render it vain, congratulations, you have more pride and self confidence than the holy apostle Paul. He worried that maybe, maybe he had sullied in some way his own witness. What this means is rather straightforward. If you've not experienced this concern or fear yet, I promise you in the course of time, you will. You will look at the work of your hands and wonder if perhaps in spite of your best efforts, in spite of your intentions, something has tainted them all, rendering them empty. I know many men in this church work in tech, big tech, and there will come a day, Where the apps that you have been creating to help people nevertheless leave you wondering, have I actually been helping to build Skynet instead of helping mankind? Yes, that was a Terminator 2 reference. If you did not grow up in the 90s, it would go over your head. Am I creating some juggernaut that's doing more harm than good? Some of you work in management. Management. And you will ask yourself at some point, if you have not already, have I actually been helping people to be more efficient? Or have I actually been bulldozing and running over people in the process? You will ask yourself, if you manage people's money, have I been helping people in some profound way? Or aiding a certain class of wealthy people to be ever more self-indulgent and irresponsible? You will consider whether or not there are so many unintended consequences of your labors that maybe it sullies all of them. Those of you who serve customers well will find yourself asking, Have I been excellent at service of customers, but terrible at treating my employees well? You'll ask yourself this question, have I been excellent at serving my family well, but letting down my co-workers and maybe my employer again and again and again? Even look at Trinitas Church. Maybe we're excellent and faithful at preaching the gospel in word and deed. But if we don't treat the people we rent from well, it can sully our witness. And we're always renting, friends. We've been doing it for seven or eight years. Maybe you look at your work and go, I've been totally efficient but totally inconsiderate and I have a complete lack of control of my body language and my attitude and my heart that I have been painful to work with wherever I go, despite the efficiency of my productiveness. If you have not asked this question of yourself before, whether your labors have been in vain, you will ask it eventually. But this isn't just true of the work of our hands, I will mention, yet another way in which we will question our labors throughout life, and it is the fear that maybe our best efforts at child-rearing have been in vain, soured, spent on nothing. For this, again, we can look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul appears to have been married for some stinted time in his life. His wife appears to have been passed away by the time he's an apostle. And we don't know if he had any children, but what we do know is this. The Apostle Paul had a deep and indescribable paternal instinct for every single church and congregation he helped to plant. Paul says this to the Corinthians in chapter four, verse 15, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I became like a father to you. And I'll tell you this, in almost every single one of these letters, Paul worries that maybe, maybe he has labored over these congregations, his children, in vain. We'll start with the Galatians. Paul says it directly in Galatians 4.11. He says this, I fear for you, Galatians, that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Perhaps all my best efforts have been to no avail. Perhaps I've done nothing. In holy inspired writing, Paul considers that maybe my best efforts were empty see what's happening in the Galatians church when Paul is writing to them is many of them although they began with a firm belief that they are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone many of them are getting concerned and going back to Jewish customs and rites, thinking maybe I get saved partly by Jesus but part of the maintenance of that salvation the keeping of it means offering sacrifices observing days observing rites. Paul's so disconcerted by this tendency back to works instead of grace and faith. He says this, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's your own efforts and labors. Did you experience so many things in vain? Was it empty? Friends, he's worried about a lamentable departure from the gospel. The reality about parenthood and raising your kids not only for the 18 years in, that they're in your home, but all the way through adulthood and starting their own families is that we will brush up against these fears from time to time. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking when entire churches you see abandoning the basics of the gospel. Friends, it is heartbreaking that the Roman Catholic communion literally prescribes a litany of acts of penance. Lest you perform them, you might find yourself in post-mortem penalty and torment for some time before you are saved. This is a departure from the gospel. Sadly, we as Reformed people can do the same things in different ways. We can become so Reformed. We can become so Reformed that we cannot celebrate the simple faith of brothers with less knowledge than ourselves and we essentially set up our grand points of doctrine in every area of theology as a higher bar of salvation than the person who has simply cried out in faith to Jesus Christ. And in this We pain our fathers and mothers in the Lord. Paul did not only worry about this Galatian son, he worried about the church in Corinth. You might have forgotten the beginning of this chapter, 15, began with this statement. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, by which you are saved, unless you believed in vain. Unless you just said, I believe it. You said the words and your heart really didn't believe it unless it was just an empty profession of faith. Paul is worried about this Corinthian church. He tells us in the beginning of the chapter that maybe his efforts there had no real fruit. He's concerned about them. He warns the Colossian church not to latch on to empty or vain philosophy. The Ephesian church not to latch on to vain or empty words about worldly behavior. Paul is essentially asking this question, how did you come out like this? I didn't raise you like this. I didn't raise you for this. As you might expect, the church in Thessalonica, not too far from Corinth, Paul says almost the exact same things. This church was under great persecution from the Jewish peoples. Paul himself was under persecution as well. He found himself under such persecution that he found himself worried about this church in Thessalonica, knowing that they were suffering persecution like himself. Tell you right now, sometimes the ferocity of your own trials will evoke worry in you about everyone else and especially about your children. And Paul says this to the Thessalonican church. He says, for this reason... When I could endure it no longer, my own suffering, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I was afraid for you Thessalonian people that maybe the temptation would be so great and I know the weakness of the will of man that maybe, maybe everything that I planted there and did there might have proven to be empty. I remember when I was in college, um, my big brother had real bouts and struggles with his faith, and my sister had seasons as well. And I remember I was off at Northwest University, and I would get phone calls from time to time from my parents saying, how are you doing? I was doing pretty good. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on at home. There will come times in your life as parents, where the adversity you are under with one child gives you fear about what might be going on with others, and you just check in like the apostle Paul did, wondering, wondering if your labors have been in vain. I'll mention one more church to you. There's the church in Philippi. Many of you may not know this, but Philippians, if there's any epistle that Paul writes where he's more happy than sad and has mainly good things to say, it's Philippians. The church in Philippi is like the good son. It's like the good kid who's doing almost everything right. Seems to need little correction. But I'll tell you this, even when things seem well and the waters seem still, you can find yourself worrying that you've labored in vain, that maybe that child who's doing good just hasn't been tested yet. Maybe they've yet to really have to fight for it. And so Paul says to this church as well, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. He says hold on We're not done yet. If at the end of the day, when you do face trial, you abandon this thing, it will break my heart and my soul. Then maybe I've labored in vain with you too. If you have not taken in the point yet, I need to make this point very clear to you. There is going to be a day, in all likelihood, where you worry even with the fruits of your own hands your own children, that maybe you've labored in vain. Or you say, I didn't raise you like this. If you've not yet contemplated it, the fact is our boys will discover, they will discover quickly and when they're young adults, that it is rather fun to be reckless and irresponsible. That might be the definition of boyhood. What this means is that it's not impossible that those of you who've raised your kids in the Lord, it is not impossible that our young men could nurture and develop a drug habit or dependency. It is not impossible that they could nurture and develop an addiction to pornography, laziness. It is not impossible. By the same right, I will tell you this, our girls are going to discover someday, our young ladies, that it is exhilarating to have their beauty noticed by young men. And it is one challenging thing to figure out what to do with that. Ask yourself if you've struggled with what to do with that. At this point, many might interject, but Brant, but Brant, the covenant promises are so simple. It says that I will be a God to you and to your children. And if you train up a child in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, he will not depart from it. Guess what? The reason these promises are made and why they're set forth as objects of our faith and belief and prayerful trust is because you will have no shortage of opportunity to disbelieve them when you pay attention to what you see with your eyes. God doesn't make promises, covenant promises, about things that are always obvious. In fact, it's the opposite. He promises us things that it is sometimes hard to believe. He promised Abraham, I'll make you a great nation, when his wife was barren. That was hard to believe. He promises us a resurrection of the body, and by all all uses of our senses, that doesn't occur, and that's hard to believe. God gives us promises about things that are challenging. I would ask you right now, if you had worldly vision and that was all, was King David a blessing or a curse to his father, Eli? Tell me the answer. You have enough to look at in the life of David to make any parent roll over in their grave with pain. Having had a young man who's involved indirectly in murder directly in adultery and a family that falls apart. And yet David was a man after God's own heart. What are we gonna do with this? The third way in which you will encounter a fear that your labors have been in vain, I'll just mention one more, is when you look at your life and maybe you've had success in a variety of areas, but the main thing, the thing you wanted most has never been obtained. Paul understood this. Did you know that Paul desired deeply, more deeply than words can express, that his own countrymen, the Jewish people, would become saved, believers in Jesus? Paul, this man who seems to have had so much success in preaching the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, with so much fruit, nevertheless could say this in Romans 9, 2 to 3, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, not as though the word of God has failed, he will go on to explain and he'll argue that it hasn't failed, but you only make an argument that the word of God hasn't failed when you or people around you feel like maybe it has. Why in the world couldn't my own people receive this gospel? Trinitas Church, right now you have a main thing that you are expending your efforts and your labors on. And let's talk about a few main things that could be burdening you. Moms, no matter who you are, you have some hand in the education and learning of your children. And maybe you have been laboring for years saying, I need this kid to learn how to add, but she she can't seem to take in these principles of mathematics. And guess what? This little girl has got to learn to add or she is not going to be effective in the world and I have been pouring out my labors nonstop on her. So despite all these other things, Lord, the main thing is missing. Dads and providers, I know that many of you have said this, I need to make more money. Yeah, I've been killing it and doing business honestly and treating my coworkers respectfully and going the extra mile in my service. My integrity is not in question, but that doesn't matter because I need to put bread on the table and I need more money. That's the main thing. Forget all these other things. If it's not that, it's something else, friends. in school pursuing a degree and you're saying the main thing is I need to pass this course that is even ancillary to the main point of my degree and I just can't do it. I can't master this subject material. That's the main thing. Other things are well but this so sours everything it makes the whole feel like it's in vain. You might be saying in spite of how well life is going in all other respects, what I need is a spouse what I need is better friends, what I need is something else in that main thing that main thing, well, for that I've labored in vain. Trinitas Church, I mention this list of things so that you can hear Paul's words in the significance that they actually have when he says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, it means that your labors are not in vain. I'm going to explain in respect of all three of these how that's the case. And I'm going to start with the main thing. And work my way back to the work of your hands. Trinitas Church, take this in. Dads and providers who are concerned about putting bread on the table, take this in. If God has miraculously resurrected Christ from the dead and promised to have that same faithfulness to your body to make you whole and complete for eternity, will he not provide providentially? that for which you feel as though you've labored in vain. You might look at your work and say, I'm still not making enough, but perhaps that diligence and that integrity will commend you to your coworkers who will one day be business owners, one day be your boss, and you don't know how these things that you have worked for and labored for will in fact bear the very fruits that you seek. Is it maybe that your real employer is God God? And he has seen your integrity and in his time he will orchestrate a better job, a lower rent, more disciplined spending habits, something to make up for that end that you have labored for but never seemed to come to pass which was making more money. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God has told you he will resurrect you. He will not abandon you. He will not abandon you in this life. Parents, I say this to you. If you go, the main thing I've been looking for is my children to excel in certain aspects of their education. If God gives life to dead people, will he not bless our labors with our children? Maybe those painstaking hours that we take with our children doing math may make for a very slow learning process that seems vain. But maybe we're showing our kids such love and patience and faithfulness that those attributes will never leave them and commend them in whatever stage and walk of life they may have from that point forward. Maybe these attributes will make up for what they lack in understanding. Paul speaks of God this way, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. He's talking about a God who brings life from the dead. We have a God who can do far more abundantly than we ever thought. So before you concede that the main thing has been lost or is in vain, consider that we have a God who works supernaturally and miraculously to bring about the ends we have sought even in spite in spite of our efforts that have seemed to fail. Maybe your biggest issue is you need friends right now. How do you know that this season of loneliness will not be followed by a newfound valuation of friends and other people so that you're that type of friend that the Bible commends? One who sticks closer than a brother. If you believe in the resurrection, you celebrate it in every part of your life. Remember Paul's? great hope his main thing that his own brethren would believe listen to what the inspired prophet says who believes in the resurrection he goes yes maybe they won't believe for a long season so that the gentiles will be brought in but he says this about the people of israel if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world what will their acceptance be but life from the dead and so all israel will be saved Maybe my efforts in this life will not bear that great fruit of my own countrymen believing, but I believe in the resurrection, the resurrection of whole peoples. And maybe it'll take 2,000 years before God blesses my labors with the fruit that I had sought for them. In the resurrection, we have the main thing. Let me turn second to the question about our children. I've said it already, belief in God's promises, they all come together in belief in the resurrection from the dead, Christ and our own belief in life from the dead. What this means is this, Trinitas Church. If you've raised kids in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord, then darn it, you believe and you pray and you pray and you believe God's promises in spite of and in faith in the face of all that you may see. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan, commenting on Proverbs 22, six: train up a, a child in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, and he will not depart from it, says this, many indeed have departed from the good way in which they were trained up. Solomon himself did so. But early training may be a means of their recovering themselves, and he cites Solomon too. God's promises do not mean that your children will never have great bouts and battles with sin like David did, but you pray and you believe and you believe and you pray the promises to your dying day that the living God will bring those kids back around in his time. Otherwise, he would not have made those promises or given us so many examples of such turns. There is one king of Israel by the name of Manasseh, raised by a very godly king by the name of Hezekiah. Manasseh engaged in idolatry, witchcraft, even child sacrifice. He was one of the most evil kings in Israel. But what do we read in Second Chronicles thirty-three thirteen? When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. See, when you believe in the resurrection, friends, you know that God can bring life from the dead, even the relatively death-like state of our children in rebellion. This is why Paul can say, you have not labored in vain. In the great story of the prodigal, we read of a young man, probably representing Israel, who leaves his father, goes about squandering his wealth, But when he returns, his father says, we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Do you really believe in the resurrection? This is where we express our belief. When by every outward measure, our labors have been in vain, but God's promises say the contrary. Though our children may court the world, though some of them may even renounce the faith as it would seem that Manasseh had done in the prodigal, even if they become entangled with the law and become legalists like the Galatians did, to believe in the resurrection is to believe and to pray, to wrestle and plead to our deathbed for life from the dead on their behalf. You know, Monica, the mother of St. Augustine, perhaps the greatest theologian in all of Christian church history, prayed and believed and believed and prayed on behalf of her son, who was a playboy, a philosopher. And her prayers were answered. Some of you might be saying, yeah, Brent, but here's the problem. See, my unbelieving kids, they've already died in unbelief. Well, guess what? The God who brings life from the dead didn't simply say this promise is for you and your children, but for you and your children's children. How do you know that your grandchildren will not be raised up in faith as an act of fidelity to his covenant promises to you? And for any one you lost, you're gonna have two, four, five, ten 10 in return. We do not even quit praying the promises for godly offspring when we have lost, when we have lost. Others you will say, well, but Brant, the problem is I don't even have grandkids. Well, guess what? The God who brings life from the dead will sooner raise up descendants for you from the dust, then have you go childless? Or do you not believe the words of Jesus Christ when he said to the apostles who pled with him that we've left everything for you? He said this, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my name's sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children. If you lament what would seem to be the loss of children in the Lord, then I would compel you to spend some time with these covenant children in the nursery and be like them as Paul was to the Galatians and to the Corinthians and all these congregations. A father who nurtured and reared other kids up in the Lord. But one of the biggest problems, is maybe some of these things haven't even happened to you yet, and you're already counting your children for dead when they're not yet. It's not over. For you, you need to believe in the resurrection, pray those promises, believe those promises again and again and again. The final thing I want to talk to you about is the work of your hands. This is an opportune time to observe that many of you might be saying, "Brand, I don't have any kids. In fact, I haven't even had a main thing in my life to fail at. In fact, I've pilfered most of my life away. And I have very little to show as regards the work of my hands at all. What do you have to tell me? Trinitas Church, probably everyone in this room, we suffer from a sickness, a sickness of our age called pragmatism, where we evaluate everyone and everything by how much they've produced, and it usually comes down to dollars. Even in the church, we have the tendency to evaluate how, how blessed the work of our hands may be by mere counting in numbers. In fact, a popular element of preaching is about goal setting. I could get up here every Sunday and teach you how to set goals and attain them. Be great, pragmatist preaching. I have one basic thing to tell you that the resurrection says to all of you. The single most important product that you have to offer the Lord is not the product of your labors at work. It is not even your own children. The only product that you will answer for wholly and completely is yourself. And the doctrine of the resurrection tells you something. You mean so much to the Lord that he has determined from eternity past by his secret counsels and predestination to give you the very sort of glorified resurrected body that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel teaches Therefore, Paul can conclude the chapter saying this, not therefore, my beloved brethren, make sure that you have innumerable fruit, but he says this, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable. Let me tell you something. The work of your hands, the product that you will present is yourself as a living sacrifice to the Lord, and you must never lose sight of that. Moms, you are not a means to an end. You're not a mere tool. You are an object of the faith and the gospel. Dads, you are not just a mere means to an end to provide for your children. You are an object of God's saving grace and an object of the resurrection. Children, kids, you look at me right now. I'm talking to you. All of you kids in this room, You do not exist just to make your parents proud and to live up to their expectations. You are the object of Jesus Christ's saving work. He came to buy you. Therefore, I would challenge you all to not go on all your years making resolutions on January 1 to produce new things, to make more money. I would suggest for a moment that you consider that you are the work of God's hands. Maybe make your resolution this year not to read 2,000 new books and learn 2,000 new things, but rather to learn to love one and the same thing, faith in the resurrection, the more. We are not like the Greeks, always looking and searching for something new. We have satisfaction in the gospel, and the work of our hands is going to be that small hand we have in our own sanctification following the lead of the Holy Spirit. And if you know that that is precious and valuable to the Lord, then you know that your labors as a steadfast believer cannot be in vain. I hope you take this perspective with you everywhere. Moms, I hope you unabashedly tell your children and maybe even your husband that today isn't going to be that fun because mom needs to spend some time with the Lord for an hour instead of go to the park. Men, I do hope that as you consider the work of your hands and how much more you could make with a little bit of overtime at the job, you would rather consider from time to time how much you had to gain to spend an hour with the Lord in his word and in prayer. And that you'd say, you know what, I'm, I'm actually a big part of those labors. And my being steadfast and immovable is not a work that I should be ashamed for devoting much attention and time. Trinitas, when you believe in the resurrection, your own, the resurrection, God's power and ability to raise the dead to life, when you believe in this truth, your labors. If you're steadfast in that belief, cannot be in vain. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we pray like the man did in Mark chapter nine, we believe, but heal our unbelief. Specifically, we believe in the resurrection but heal our unbelief, our lack of attention to it, a lack of consideration of it because, God, we are too often drowning in that fearful consideration that maybe everything we've done is empty. May we, like Paul, confess that disposition of our heart, but may we, like Paul, conclude that our labors cannot be in vain in the Lord. Because, God, you bring life, you bring meaning, you bring hope out of darkness, death, and sin. You spoke the worlds into existence when there was nothing. How much more can you do with our efforts, our labors for the kingdom, no matter how humble and tainted they may be? May we leave this place believing the gospel. Father, I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.